0: This is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the National Tsunami podcast. This week, we are offering four conversations from Season 3, Episode 13, our discussion on the draft guidance from NICE in the UK about reimbursing fiber scan screening in primary care and community settings. This conversation points up healthcare system inefficiencies that make this kind of assessment difficult to do. It starts with me asking whether there's a problem when the economists restrict reimbursement for something the healthcare system wants to do, while working with a set of data not set up to address the problem they're answering. Ian Rowe described this is the tension in the way the system is organized, which he says makes it, quote, not a real issue, unquote. Joran Schottenberg, disagreeing somewhat, notes two large challenges. First, NICE is asking a diagnostics company to assume a cost burden for analysis more appropriate to the profits a drug company might see from an affirmative decision. And second, that this analysis focuses on identifying disease, whereas our goal in the context of liver disease should be to promote health. Maurice Campbell suggests that even within the disease analyzing camp, analysts should explore the cost-benefit ratio for serafinib and other late-stage HCC treatments versus the benefit of avoiding liver cancer in the first place with community screening. In the end, the group agrees on the need for a data-driven approach, with Louise Campbell suggesting a specific relook at costing here. Other approaches to data are more general, and we also agree on finding better ways to invest in wellness instead of waiting to spend against disease. While on one level this discussion is entirely about the UK, the issues are universal, even if the solutions are somewhat country-specific. Every health payer in the world, public and private, will face some version of what we discuss here over the next few years. So sit back, listen, enjoy, Learn. When you're done, join the dialogue on our LinkedIn and Facebook discussion groups. Some of this conversation is directly relevant. And some of it kind of talks past each other, by which I mean, I hear the argument that goes on the one hand, we probably don't have enough data to make a complete case. Louise just suggested that in some situations, if this ruling were to go into effect, it would mean that other things that NICE was advocating couldn't be executed because you couldn't get the machines to the site where the people have to be cared for. Do I understand that correctly? That those are really two different issues?
1: Ian Rowe.
2: Kind of, Roger. I think this is, some of this is around the way that healthcare is organised and reimbursed in the UK. So, I... Oh. The NHS has a responsibility to adhere to NICE commissioning statements. So if NICE says drug X is cost effective, then the NHS has to provide it. But at the same time, the NHS can work outside NICE because NICE cannot provide guidance for all circumstances. The sequin that Louise referred to about alcohol testing is a sort of illustration of that, where the clinical reference groups have identified an area of need and have suggested an intervention, in this case, liver testing for patients who are um, alcohol dependent or consuming alcohol hazardously, but without a nice recommendation in the background, it's a tension in the way that the system's organized, not necessarily a, a real issue.
0: Um, okay, until the last sentence, I was right with you. How does some, something's attention in the way the system is organized become a real issue or not become a real issue? So
2: commissioning... We'll sometimes recommend services that are not NICE recommended. The DAA situation was probably the best example of that. We were receiving recommendations about which DAA to choose based on commercial agreements and data that was early before NICE could give an opinion. That wasn't necessarily a tension then between the NHS and between NICE, but actually we were practicing with contemporary data with the best drugs to use at the time. In this setting, it's a bit different. The sort of diagnostic need is not the same, I don't think, for those patients who really needed hepatitis C treatment. It's
1: quite different schottenberg the crucial difference here is of course that with a pharmacological agent being approved and being uh, prescribed you you're going to make different revenues than with the diagnostic tests so there's a different willingness of a company to invest front to get a drug approved versus a diagnostic test approved. And I think this is one of the big differences here. It's a burden to diagnostic tests because if you need the same study setup show outcome improvements for a diagnostic test versus a, a treatment that's of course a hurdle for diagnostic tests where I think the, differences in reimbursement are not is as big as in, in, in pharmacological arena. Another important aspect that we haven't addressed is how can we promote health instead of identifying disease. This is where these type of diagnostic tests come in, but this is also where the healthcare system struggles because many times we only pay for things in a diseased state where you have the HCV rna positive but if we have the option to intervene and, and provide prevention because somebody is identified through diagnostic tests and being at risk and we prevent something down the line i think we've discussed this it takes a long time to improve and then address this but i think this is the true benefit maybe that's why the healthcare systems struggle with the assessment of the benefit uh, in, in this context
3: here. Louise Campbell. I agree with you in the context that the narrative has to change to wellness and um, NICE and everything is an illness-focused system. But I'd also like to propose a set of research that we look at how much serafinib and end-stage HCC treatments that NICE have approved are used over the next three years in patients that had they have had a fibroscan scan or earlier non-invasive diabetes. Diagnostics and picked up in the community wouldn't have needed to be prescribed because serafinib, The cost per patient of serafinib and the other approved agents is very large for a three to six months extension of life. It was raised in a conversation a couple of weeks ago with a HCC expert and Pam McDonough. And actually, it pales in such significance how many fibroscans that we could get done. And we've already seen data that and um, fibroscan in the community. Dina Mansour's study, I think it was, also showed the great pickup of HCC or people at risk of HCC for monitoring to pick them up early so that we don't need these drugs. We are going to see, as Chris has already suggested, a big rise, The perfect storm. And if we don't pick these people up earlier, we're spending more money, at very expensive
0: costs at the end. So we're past an hour, so I want to start to go to final question. And final question is going to be two questions, OK? Uh, number one is, within the confines of how NICE operates, what is what would you like to see them do on this round with this issue? And then the second was If you could wave a magic wand What else are you confident It would be a good idea to do Please note I changed From what do you like To what are you confident of Because we'd all like To see everything And having spent Pardon me this is going to be A metaphor that might offend people Having spent the last two days Trying to explain to my Four year old granddaughter The difference between What you want and what you need And what you neither want Nor need but just want To stamp your feet about On the first one I'd like to do Consistent with their charter What would you like to see them do And then regardless of charter What are you confident Would be a good idea for them to do Brave one go first Oh
3: I'll be brave and jump in I would like them to get the actual costings right and go back to every unit in the country who runs FibreScan and look at exactly how it's costed so that we work out who's doing what, where and why and what the actual costs are because that wasn't what was described in the meeting. There was an assumption that everybody costs elastography. as the same and that's not what happened. So that's what I would like to see them take back and actually work out the genuine levels that we're charging.
0: Okay and what are you confident would be a good idea to do even if it's not within the the uh, charter of this discussion?
3: I suppose what I'm confident that I would like to see is the consideration of where we are in COVID. It even entered the room and the conversation. It was not mentioned once, either in the open discussion or since then. So I think it has to be taken into consideration when you're approving anything nowadays or not approving. You need to consider its effect for or against patients post-pandemic, particularly in liver disease, which has had such a massive impact in COVID.
1: From my perspective, the the only way forward here is a data-driven approach. And that came out of uh, the discussion. And also, I think it's the basis of this document. So I wanted to see the ongoing research project. I mentioned Liverscreen as a EU-funded project that's run multi-centric across many countries in the EU to succeed as a diagnostic test, but then also to see follow-up on these patients and see what comes out of this. So I want this type of trials um, that actually will hand us data that then can be used by Chris to calculate future benefits and, and cost savings. I think that's very important. And I can't really speak on NICE, but something that's being moved forward, that I'd like to see being moved forward, is that the context that fibrosing liver disease is a disease burden. It's a burden on quality of health. It impairs and it incurs many costs down the road. And we need to address this. as just something you Now, I strongly believe in. I'm convinced that we'll see benefit by identifying patients only. Yeah, I think the data-driven
2: approach is important and especially looking in long term. So a major issue with a lot of decision makers, especially government and policy, is they're only looking at next year's budget. When we think about NAFL or Nash, if we look really long term, preventing childhood obesity, I mean you can that, that's a fairly small cost today, but you won't see any benefits maybe till twenty fifty. The policymakers are always just looking at what kind of what's gonna happen with their budget next year. So it's really kind of long term thinking and considering all facets of disease, it's not just the cost of cirrhosis. It's you have to look at you know loss work Productivity and these other facets of metabolic syndrome and what the impact is going to be. Because, you know, as Louise said, it really is a tidal wave and they also need to consider the impact of COVID. It set us back, you know, quite a bit in, in every disease area.
0: I didn't think Ian had commented yet. No. Uh, but you were being so quiet about it that I thought I might actually have missed it. Go ahead. How's your
2: chance? Yeah, <laughs> yeah well, the, tr- the trouble is, I don't really know what to say other than I think NICE is an extremely valuable institution to the UK and we have to understand the impact of a cost-constrained system and making rational decisions I think it's a lot easier with drug treatments, with efficacy and costs, uh, where they're measured within the trial setting, and that does make life a lot easier. And you have to remember that NICE only considers the questions that it's asked, and where they're very tight about, you know, in this case, a single comparator, then they they can only answer that, and they can only answer it with data. And and I hope that we will see that data emerge, whether that's a study that's commissioned by Ecosense or whether that's a study that's done separately. That'll be an important question. The other thing that goes along with the data-driven approaches is that we are currently missing a trick and that is you know we're not capturing routine data about about elastography so they the document refers to a code for ultrasound based elastography which I think is probably RFI delivered in radiology departments infrequently you know saying that there's about 4,000 scans done a year we're doing a couple of thousand scans in Leeds a year so the total number of fibre scans is going to be a lot more than NICE have considered and ECOSENs have got access to that data and I think that they're missing a trick by not looking at the individual patient data but the accrued experience and the number of scans that are being done because I think that that would allay some concerns about the learning curve and the quality assurance issues in, in the primary care or community setting.
3: Just to elaborate on that we perform in the UK the last time I was aware somewhere between 80 to 100,000 fibroscans. scans and as you say I was doing 1,500 a year. <laughs> and in a unit that was doing three and a half, four thousand 4,000 scans. I don't know where they got those figures from. And this this is my concern about a document that's going forward not to be reviewed in three years, is where that information came from. It appears inaccurate at best.
0: Let me try to summarize. First of all, illness needs to be data-driven. The analysis of avoidance of illness or cost reduction around illness needs to be data-driven. You can't do that kind of thing on faith, but you have to do it with good data. And Louise raises questions question of whether the data is good. Um, nice raises questions of whether they have enough of it. And Chris can work magic with what you give him. People who do what he does, but magic even only takes you so far. So that's issue number one. The other issue that hangs over all this is that wellness is a lot harder to do as a data-driven phenomenon. I mean, you could probably do, as Chris points out, for childhood obesity. But on a lot of these other things, the data is a lot harder to produce because the cases are a lot more complicated. And in fact, a lot of this gets argued on faith, which is a tough argument to make and to win within existing systems. My first realization about health economics back a long, long time ago was a friend of mine used to say that if you could eradicate osteoarthritis in the world, with a drug that you gave everybody every day between the age of 25 and 29 and never had to give them again, never had to give it again. And it cost $2.50 a day. You couldn't find a government in the world that would support it because of when you actually experience the cost of osteoarthritis. And that is what we're talking about here, right? Not osteoarthritis, but the same basic idea, which is if you start treating fatty liver early, you're 10, 15, 20 years downstream from when you're going to get benefit. And systems aren't designed to do that or designed to calculate that. So we find ourselves in situations where, where we are data driven. We have to be smarter about the data we get and get, to get it better and analyze it better. And then somewhere to the side of all that needs to be a whole bunch of advocacy, which is what Donna does and what Louise does a lot of and we try to do some of on this podcast. Keeping the two in their tracks, I think, is a helpful thing because if, if, if they cross the tracks, then you want to make arguments you can't support or you want to miss an opportunity you need to take. That's just a discipline. Any other closing thoughts for anybody on this?
3: I'm going to have one closing thought that if there is anybody, patient, charity, or on the medical or nursing side, this document is open for comments. Please read it if you are in the UK. Please comment on it and put it back because they will take Take your comments and I'm sure the British Liver Trust will have a number of comments and Liver for Life and PBC Foundation and Children's Liver. Everybody needs to be aware they have the opportunity to read and comment by the 9th of March and that's all we're asking for is as many comments as to how this affects you or doesn't affect you so let's have them because that's how we can have that dialogue, that's how we can bring forward how people feel about having not having access to a diagnostic
1: and now back to roger
0: we hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, please send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. We will be back next week with a discussion on complex balloon hepatocytes, a topic of tremendous interest since it became a center of discussion at NASHTAG earlier this year. In addition to Stephen and Louise, we'll be joined by Quentin Anstey, Jorn Schottenberg, and Maz and Nora Dean to discuss the general issue. And after the close of that discussion, Dean Tai, Chief Scientific Officer of HistoIndex, will join us for a discussion of the role that machine learning or AI-based algorithms can play in improving our analysis of balloon hepatocytes. That discussion is sponsored by Histoindex. Until then, stay safe, surf on, we'll see you on the podcast, hopefully next week. Bye-bye now.